You're watching CNN. I'm Julia Chatterley in New York. No safe places left, the words of the military governor in Luhansk, who says Russia is shelling everywhere. He accused Russian soldiers of opening fire on people escaping in a car, killing four. And officials in Kremina say their city has been lost to Russians carrying huge amounts of equipment. President Zelensky once again highlighting attacks on innocent civilians. He says Russian forces are guilty of committing deliberate terrorism and are determined to wipe out Donbass cities. Russian troops are preparing for an offensive operation in the east of our country. It will begin in the near future. They want to literally finish off and destroy Donbass, destroy everything that once gave glory to this industrial region. Just as the Russian troops are destroying Mariupol, they want to wipe out other cities and communities in the Donetsk and Luhansk regions. And in Mariupol, the resistance continued after Ukrainian troops rejected Russian demands to surrender. They've been told to lay down their weapons or be, quote, eliminated. An advisor to the mayor said Russian forces promised to seal off the city and men who remained would be, quote, filtered out. In Lviv, in West Ukraine, which has been mostly spared from violence until now, Russian missile strikes killed seven people and injured 11 others. They hit military targets, a tire repair center, and shattered windows at a hotel that's housing refugees. Matt Rivers is there for us. Well, Julia, Ukrainian officials at a midday press conference confirming that Russian missiles struck four different sites across the city of Lviv on Monday morning here, uh, local time. At that press conference, talking about the sites that were hit, three of the four were varying warehouses, according to the Ukrainian officials. The fourth site being a tire repair shop. And now in terms of casualties across all four missile sites, and these numbers could certainly change, at least seven people uh, have been killed so far, with at least 11 people injured in total, three of them potentially critically. We know that four of the 11 reported injured so far actually came from that tire repair shop. We visited that tire repair shop site, and the buildings that are on site there are utterly destroyed. First responders, firefighters uh, still putting out fires at that scene. It has been several weeks since we have seen strikes hit Lviv, the city of Lviv, the region of Lviv. Uh, however, it was just a few days ago that Ukrainian defense officials here said that they shot down using air defense systems several cruise missiles that were fired by Russian warplanes that Ukrainian officials say took off from neighboring Belarus. And while Lviv certainly has not felt the impact of this war like so many other parts of Ukraine, safe to say that people here in the western part of the country after these missile strikes are certainly much more on edge than they were even just a few days ago. Julia. And now to the Kyiv region, where at the weekend Russia targeted the town of Brovery. Officials say rockets attacked damaged infrastructure facilities there, potentially impacting power and water supply. CNN correspondent Phil Black is in Kyiv for us. Phil, Russian forces have struck targets in Kyiv and the surrounding region over the past three days. That The message here, I think, is that while Russian troops have withdrawn, it's still within range of, of rocket fire. What can you tell us about what's being targeted and what the weekend was like? Yeah, that's right, Julia. So three strikes in the key, in this key surrounding area in as many days. And as you say, the most recent was in the east, some infrastructure facilities there. And it seems to fit what for the moment is a trend, and that is hitting individual targets on the outskirts 
uh, of the capital. Now, it was only last week that Russia warned, and it did so again after one of these recent strikes, that it would continue to strike Kyiv if it believed uh, that Ukraine was planning to launch attacks on the territory of the Russian Federation. But one of these recent strikes was against a facility which Russia, Russia says is involved uh, in the making and repair of missiles, surface-to-air missiles, but also anti-ship missiles. And so that raised the theory that that attack, at least, perhaps was retaliation for the sinking of the Moskva, the Russian uh, missile cruiser that went down last week, the, black, uh, the flagship of the Black Sea Fleet, sunk, Ukraine says, by two of its anti-ship missiles, Russia still hasn't acknowledged a missile strike on the ship, has only talked about a fire on board being the cause uh, of the sinking. So as it stands, apart from some theories, a few basic facts in common, a few words of potential motivation from the Russian military, it is too early to say whether or not these represent isolated incidents against specific targets or whether they are part of uh, some renewed, prolonged campaign uh, to once again harass the capital. Julia. Phil, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that. Phil Black there. Meanwhile, residents trying to escape from the eastern town of Slyvyansk in the east of Ukraine, as Clarissa Ward reports. At the Alexander Nevsky Cathedral in Slyvyansk, an ardent prayer from worshippers under the shadow of Russia's war. We ask for your mercy, Lord. Please hear us. They have gathered here for Orthodox Palm Sunday, carrying willows instead of palms per the Orthodox tradition. It's supposed to be a celebration of Jesus' return to Jerusalem, but there is little joy in this congregation. Ukrainian officials say this city will be a decisive battleground in Russia's imminent offensive in the Donbass region. The streets are getting emptier as the fighting gets closer. Those still here are being urged to leave. The air raid siren is an unrelenting wail. You can't hear it because the sirens are so loud, but we've heard a steady stream of booms coming from that way in the distance. But as you can see, people here are just used to it. The children continue to play. The adults try to stay strong. This group is awaiting an evacuation bus to the safety of Western Ukraine. Raisa tells us she's taking her grandchildren to Lviv. Their mother died three years ago. You hear what's happening here, she says. My husband's still at home. His health isn't good enough to make the journey. Her granddaughter offers some support. Oh, Grandma, she says, I love you. Anna Stepanovna is full of anguish that the international community has failed to rein in Putin. When they show the children killed, I can't, I cry, she says. Why can't they stop this one idiot? If they will send me, I will shoot him. Seven weeks into this ugly war, there is no end in sight. Pavel is saying goodbye to his wife, Olga. She doesn't want to let go of him. Scenes of separation that have become all too familiar. 
Everything will be okay, the organizer tells her. Comforting words that mask a grim reality. And staying in eastern Ukraine, a city of Kremina has now been lost, according to a senior Ukrainian official. This comes as President Zelensky says he's not willing to give up territory in the Donbass region to end the war. In the centuries-old history of Ukraine, there is the story that Ukraine has either taken some territory or needs to give up some territory. Ukraine and the people of our state are absolutely clear. We don't want anyone else's territory, and we are not going to give up our own. Bedouin Medin is live in the eastern city of Kramatorsk for his Ben. Good to have you with us. President Zelensky said he won't get up, give up the east, and that's been the message all the way along. They won't give an inch of territory up for peace, but the fear, I think, is that it's taken anyway. Uh, yes, in fact, at 5 a.m. local time, 11 hours ago, the town of Kremina in the east was taken by the Russians. And this is acknowledged uh, by Ukrainian officials. This was after weeks of bombardment, days of street fighting. And uh, right bef- before, in the last 24 hours, officials were saying that it's essentially impossible uh, to organize an evacuation of people from that town. And we understand that one car, a private car, was trying to escape. Uh, It had five people on board, came under fire by Russian forces. Four people were killed. Apparently, there's a woman who's injured. The last we heard is she's still in the car because uh, medical personnel cannot reach her. And what we're seeing is that along the entire front here in eastern Ukraine, there have been overnight intense artillery bombardments here in Kramatorsk at a very early in the morning, a Russian caliber or cruise missile uh, hit the town. No injuries as far as we can tell, although it did cause some damage uh, to local buildings. And, and officials here in the entire area are becoming increasingly concerned uh, that so many people remain, so many civilians uh, remain in this area. Just a little while ago, we were speaking with the mayor of Kramatorsk, and he told us, I've tried, I've tried to tell people it's not safe. You should get out. But he says some people stubborn. They just want to stay in the homes they lived in all their lives. But there is a danger approaching. Julia? Ben, we were just listening to Clarissa talking to families as well that were divided and those just saying they were either unwilling or leaving their menfolk behind because they were too old or incapacitated and unable to leave. It's a story all across the country. Um, I want to get your sense of, of Mariupol too, because I think that's become a, a broader symbol of, of Ukrainian resistance and fight when you're facing desperate odds at this stage. And I believe the fighting continues even despite the, the ultimatum that was given by the Russians over the weekend to say get out or effectively we're going to go in there and and filter out the menfolk the fighting continues Ben what can you tell us about what's going on there still 
And to describe the situation as desperate is perhaps an understatement. What you have is a few pockets of Ukrainian resistance uh, still holding out, many of them in the Azovstal steel plant uh, by the side of the city. But it has come under constant uh, bombardment. As you said yesterday at 1 p.m., a deadline expired, a Russian deadline expired. And they said that uh, whoever does not surrender by that deadline in their words, the words of the Russian defense ministry will be eliminated. We understand they're sealing off the city at this point, and uh, people, male residents, will have three choices. Either you join the army, the Russian army, either you help, and I'm, this is all forcible, obviously, forced, either you help clean up the rubble, or if you are in any way somebody they suspect of having sympathies or affiliations with the Ukrainian government, whether army, police, local administration, they will be detained and perhaps sent to these so-called filtration uh, camps where their fate obviously is unknown. We understand from uh, officials in Mariupol, that as many as 31,000 people have been taken out of the city and put in these filtration camps. Julia? Mm. Ben Weidman, thank you so much for that. Now, the war in Ukraine resulting in slower economic growth all over the world. In China, the additional problem of the largest COVID outbreak since the pandemic began. China actually reporting better than expected growth in the first quarter, but of course it's backward looking and the picture is worsening with a 3.5% fall in retail sales last month and unemployment rising. Stephen Jiang has the details. The first officially confirmed COVID deaths in Shanghai involved three unvaccinated senior citizens aged around 90 with underlying medical conditions. Now, this kind of amazingly low rate of death, three out of over 370,000 infections, just uh, has raised a lot of questions among independent experts saying it simply doesn't add up compared to uh, what they have seen in other regions and countries dealing with Omicron infections. It's also in a way putting the authorities, the Chinese authorities in the bind because while they are pointing to uh, this kind of low death rate to uh, showcase their success and effectiveness of their zero COVID policy, it's also making it very difficult for them to justify their continued lockdown of more than 25 million residents of Shanghai, the country's biggest city and its financial and business hub. And already this continued and increasingly draconian lockdown is starting to dampen the prospect of the country's economic growth for 2020. 22, with analysts saying the seemingly sanguine figure of 4.8% growth for first quarter GDP belies the fact the economy is in distress. Because remember, Shanghai went into lockdown only late in March. So what the impact is not yet reflected in economic data from this country. And already uh, they are seeing some worrisome trend, even in March, with some figures in areas the government has tried to depend on to transform its economic growth model from being dependent on manufacturing to uh, being driven by services and consumer spending. There is some very worrisome trend there, including retail sales dropping 3.5% in March and unemployment figures rising for that same period. So all of this is probably why the central government now has announced a so-called white list of over 600 companies in Shanghai's key industries, authorizing them to presume uh, to resume production under uh, a so-called closed-loop management system.
system. Now remember that was used during the Beijing Winter Olympics, but as of now, it seems uh, local officials in Shanghai and company exec- executives see very little incentive to adopt the system because of the much greater risks of them being held responsible if new COVID cases emerge under their management. Not to mention the logistical nightmare of trying to uh, transporting, trying to transport workers uh, from lockdown residences to their factories. And all of this, and of course, given Shanghai's prominence in global trade, uh, really means the worst is yet to come, not just for China's economy, but also for the international supply chain. Stephen Jiang, CNN, Beijing. We're going to take a quick break, but we're back after this. Stay with CNN. Welcome back. For months now, Maxar has provided news outlets around the world with a different view of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Satellite images giving viewers an understanding of the war from above, from before and after images of the destruction in Mariupol to Russian troops and equipment in eastern Ukraine. Maxar images have even been used to fight misinformation after atrocities seen in places like Bucha. Steve Wood joins us now. He's the senior director of Maxar's News Bureau. Steve, great to have you on the show. It's not just viewers and it's not just what we see on the TV when when broadcasters are discussing what's going on. It's intelligence agencies as well. And it it ties to the lack of, of those on the ground. You're providing an essential part of intelligence understanding of what's going on, too. Just talk us through what your technology provides. Good morning, Julia. Yeah, thank you. You mentioned a couple of really important points just at the very beginning. So our satellite imagery, and we, we own and operate four satellites right now that are orbiting around the Earth. And one of the central ideas from really its origins was to have unclassified imagery, imagery that could be shared. This kind of very high resolution detailed imagery is used by, as you mentioned, the U.S. government, by governments around the world, but then also can be used as a vehicle to actually show what's happening. It's a tool that can show things that are in a very remote area, it can be a very dangerous area, it can be otherwise almost impossible to get to. But our satellites, because they're orbiting above the Earth, can see that in a level of detail that is extremely good. I guess that also means if you've got satellites uh, orbiting the Earth, they're only able to capture specific terrain for a certain period each day. What's the, the capabilities in terms of that? And then how quickly can it be accessed back on Earth? Yeah, no, that, that's a very important point. So these satellites are moving at a very rapid speed. They're, they are in orbit. So, you know, basic physics, they're moving 17,000 miles an hour. They'll go over, let's say, you know, part of the Ukraine. Let's use Kiev as our example. They'll image in the morning to early afternoon, and then it'll probably be about another 24 hours before they come back. So you, we, we are seeing a snapshot in time. But one of the important things that we're doing is we're building more satellites right now. We're getting ready to, to launch our new constellation called Legion, and that'll bring additional assets. And it's always been a story about getting more eyes on what's happening around the world for our customers. Uh, we call it Revisit, but it's basically having more looks at an area on the ground so you can actually see what's happening, get that imagery back to the customers, and to do it quickly. Um, timing has improved dramatically, so we're able to get the imagery in the hands of our customers, including the media like at CNN within a matter of hours, if not sometimes even minutes. Yeah, I know it's been an incredible resource. You're also focusing your attention now as we see the shape of this war changing on the Donbass region in the east. What can you tell us about what you're capturing even at this stage? 
Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that we've been doing is this, we, we will continue to shift our focus based on activity that's happening in the world. Um, your earlier guest spoke about Shanghai. So we'll look at areas like that. It's not just Ukraine. We are doing this around the world 24 by 7, 365 days a year. But with the Donbass in particular, as the forces continue to move into that region, of course, we're using our satellites to monitor activity, whether it's in Mariupol with the humanitarian issues, the forces themselves. Um, that's part of what we do every day is to try and track that. One of the factors we have to be concerned about or to, to deal with, I should say, is the weather. Um, the weather in the past few days has been pretty poor. And so we don't see through clouds with our satellites. And so we are trying to always optimize what we're able to collect. But hopefully the weather will improve soon so we have a, a better, more complete view of what's happening. Yeah, I know that impaired your ability to uh, collect imagery surrounding the, the Moskva, the, the Russian flagship, and actually what happened there. Yeah, no, that's right. So we we actually imaged the Moskva. The, this is the big Russian cruiser, of course, that was uh, that was hit and, and ultimately sunk. And we imaged the, the ship as it was in port in Sevastopol uh, several days before that incident occurred. And then we also imaged it again when it was out at sea. But the moment of the actual incident, um, we, we unfortunately were not able to see. And that, that's, again, a, a part of the limitations, but also the ability to have additional imagery and information to bring this all together as a complete story. It's, it's something that we will always try and improve upon. And the techno technology continues to improve to be able to let us do that. Yeah, I mean, it's incredible when people when we don't have people on the ground or troops on the ground in any way or sphere. This is this is the eyes effectively. Um, it's also been pivotal in fighting misinformation, which I wanted to talk to you about as well. I mean, you were part of helping the media build a picture of quite what was happening in Bucha and some of the misrepresentation, it seems, of, of the stories. The Russians were saying, look, these could be potential actors. And I'm talking about the people that lost their lives and were, were literally lying in the streets when, when the media was able to get in and understand what had happened in there. Your satellite imagery showed that some of those people had been lying there for many days and they weren't actors that had just laid down for the purpose of video to be collected and then got up and walked away. You saw some very graphic images there. Yeah, absolutely. That was, frankly, that was one of the more um, graphic and, and more heartrending things that we've had mm. to, to deal with. You know, I've been doing this business, I've been in the business for more than a couple of decades. And frankly, to be able to look at this type of activity, um, it, it makes you pay attention to it. We, we ended up working very closely in this case with the New York Times to initially do the investigation and to help identify, identify and go back and look what was happening in Bucha. But you, you raised a really important point, too, and it's it's how people then tried to, di to make disinformation about the, the entire incident and to claim that it had been faked when we had very satellite imagery photographic proof of what was really happening. And ultimately, some of the disinformation, <clears throat> this is the entire effort of what we we're trying to do with our media reach, is to help combat disinformation, to show visual representation and, and photographic proof of things that are happening, whether it's human rights atrocities, uh, like we saw in Bucha and Mariupol and other areas. Um, the, the imagery speaks for itself oftentimes, but it's it's telling that complete story. And frankly, our partnership with the media has been essential to do that. Um, and Steve, I can hear in your voice how difficult it must be for you and your team to, to be collecting images like you've seen in Mariupol. So we thank you too for the work that you're doing. Um, very quickly, cyber risk. 
clearly, as we've discussed, you are vital eyes in the skies. How well protected are you against the threat of of cyber terrorism that perhaps tries to, to close those eyes? It's, of course, something we take very seriously. We, we've been in this business for, again, as I mentioned, a couple of decades. Mm. So this isn't a new incident for us or a new type of uh, concern or business uh, issue we have to, to think about. Um, obviously, we don't go into a whole lot of details about what we do to protect ourselves, but it's significant. And it's something that we, we will continually modify and update as we need to. Um, so that's that's really where we are today. And we'll, we'll continue to watch that very carefully. Steve, great to chat to you. Thank you for all the work you and your team you. are doing. Thank you. Steve, Wood, Senior Director of MaxArt News Bureau. Okay, so ahead. The battle for eastern Ukraine is intensifying, a critical moment in the almost two-month-old conflict for NATO and the West as well. Political risk expert Ian Bremer sees no end to the fighting his insights into what's next in the crisis coming up. Welcome back. Russia intensifying its military campaign in eastern Ukraine and launching rocket attacks in the west of the country. Seven people have been killed, 11 injured after Russian missiles struck Lviv, a major population center, the first substantial airstrikes it suffered. Heavy fighting also being reported in the besieged city of Mariupol in the southeast. Ukrainian troops there refusing to surrender despite a fresh Russian ultimatum. All this as the eastern city of Kremina falls to the Russians. Ukraine's President Zelensky is saying in an exclusive CNN interview that he refuses to give up territory in the east. Zelensky also warning that Moscow could resort to using nuclear weapons if the war does not go Putin's way. They could do it. I mean, so they, they can. For, for them, life of the people is nothing. That's why we should think not not uh, not be afraid i mean that not be afraid be ready but uh, but that is not the question for to ukraine and not only for the ukraine for all the uh, for all the world i think so Ukraine, not the only major international story this Monday. Beijing doubling down on its zero COVID policy, expanding emergency lockdowns to multiple cities as case numbers tick higher. Ongoing lockdowns in Shanghai and other areas were a factor behind a three and a half percent drop in retail sales last month, with the Chinese jobless rate rising at the same time. Ian Bremer joins us. He's the president and founder of the Eurasia Group and G Zero Media and the author of the new book, The Power of Crisis, How Three Threats and Our Response Will Change the World. Ian, always great to have you on the show. Where to begin? Um, I think you were the first person that said to me, unfortunately, the war in Ukraine won't end swiftly and it won't end well. And now the intelligence services are saying, look, this could last all year. Is that your view too? Sure. Uh, There's no scenario uh, where it ends well for anyone. uh, And of course, uh, least of all for the Ukrainians. Uh, I think what we're looking at right now, you know that uh, the Russians have just taken their worst naval combat loss of the sinking of their flagship in the Black Sea since World War II. And they uh, and it was taken out by the Ukrainians, a country that doesn't even have a navy. Uh, That is an enormous humiliation for Russia on top of what has been a string of humiliations for Russia in this war. But they're not going to capitulate. They're not going to accept defeat. And so when Zelensky is interviewed on CNN, (coughs) excuse me, and says, yes, they can use nuclear weapons. What he's saying is that 
the Russians are already being cut off uh, from pretty much every economic sanction that could be used against them. Almost every weapon system that could be sent to the Ukrainians are going to be sent to the Ukrainians. What else can plausibly done be done against Russia? It's not like people are going to invade Russia itself. And so the, the willingness of Putin to throw everything he has to ensure some form of outcome in Ukraine that he can claim as a victory for his own people and for the Russian nation is, is kind of minimum table stakes for Putin. It certainly means there's no successful negotiations process going forward, but it also has to make you feel a lot worse about where this war is going, Judith. I mean, the Pope was warning about nuclear weapons this weekend. As you point out, President Zelensky saying they don't rule that out either. Is that a possibility, the use of, of chemical or, or nuclear weapons? And does it change anything for the West if we do see that? Um, I, yeah, of course, it does change things um, in the sense that I think it, it strengthens the willingness to compare Putin with the most villainous, murderous dictators in, in, in global history. I mean, right now, if people compare Putin to Hitler, um, I think there's still a view that that's a bridge too far for most people that aren't partisans in the war. If he were to use a nuke, uh, you know, it's sort of like anything you can do to get rid of this, this dictator, you sort of have to do. Biden's moved in that direction already by saying that he's committed war crimes, by saying he's committing genocide. Um, but if he moves towards and I, nuclear weapons, I really think is, a, is thankfully is a very, very low probability scenario, though I agree with the Ukrainian president's possible. But chemical weapons, um, I mean, if it looks like the Russians are losing in southeast Ukraine, are not able to take the Donbass, that the Ukrainians are able to strike territory inside Russia with their helicopters, with their artillery, um, I, I think the Russians would absolutely consider using chemical weapons because the Ukrainians have no defense against them because that would cause panic in the cities, that would empty the cities uh, and would make it easier for the Russians to take that territory in a way that militarily, otherwise perhaps that might not be available to them. The underperformance of the Russian military was clearly a very good thing in the early weeks because it stopped them from taking Kiev, it stopped them from getting rid of the Ukrainian government. The longer we go, the more the underperformance of the Russian military is itself a danger because it makes it more likely that Putin will act in ways that are even more destabilizing. I was going to call it a war of attrition, and it's wrong for a couple of reasons, because the, the, the battles and the, and the war is bigger than that, in a sense. But I do wonder, in that kind of scenario, who outlasts who, particularly if the West continues to feed weaponry and a more forceful weaponry to the Ukrainians. And on the Russian side, you've got an increasingly frustrated uh, President Putin who is seeing losses, who's seeing underperformance and, and looks to what he has remaining. All at the same time, his economy continues to come under severe pressure. He said today, inflation of 17.5%. Well, uh, the, so look, the Ukrainians, of course, their economy is being almost halved this year. And that is a, an astonishing blow to any country of scale in the world. But the level of international support that Ukraine will receive going forward as a consequence of this war and the way they fought it, the courageousness that they've shown, will, will be enormous. So as much as you can say Ukraine can't win here, 
because look what's happening to their country. You're never getting these people back. Look at the trauma being faced by almost five million, million mostly women and children that have been forced to flee their country and become refugees unwillingly. I mean, that, that's not a win for anyone. But you can see the Ukrainians be able to rebuild in most of their territory and actually use this from the ashes of the war, build into a country that they would all be very proud of, that there'd be a strong sense of nationalism, and they would increasingly be oriented towards and aligned towards Europe. For Russia, Julia, there is no such outcome. There's no way that you can rebuild a normal political or economic or security relationship between the United States and Russia as long as Putin's in power. And I, I increasingly think that's true for the Europeans as well. And that's, mm -hmm. a, that's a huge problem because, of course, you know, yeah, China's still out there. They're, they're buddies with Putin. I get it. But actually, if you look at Russia's population, if you look at their economy, you look at their infrastructure, it's mostly in the Russian West. It's mostly oriented towards Europe. And that's gone. They've literally destroyed it because of their decision to invade this country of 44 million people. You know, this is a fascinating point. There was a, a great op-ed in The Economist at the weekend, and it said only a third of the world actually has denounced this war. The other third is, is neutral on the fence, and they include countries like India, the UAE, the Saudis. Um, and then the other third, and obviously that includes China, to varying degrees, is sort of portraying Russia's narrative on this war too. And I look at what's taking place in Shanghai and the pressures now that China's coming under. To what extent, if anything, does what they're suffering now with COVID and the challenges that you and I have talked about with the zero COVID policy in some way come to bear on the pressure or not that they place on, on Russia to end this? Um, there's not much pressure from the Chinese government on Russia at all at this point, and they certainly would be able to use it. Um, look, I mean, in, in part, uh, you see that uh, the Chinese are not doing more trade with Russia, even though they're politically supporting them. And that's because Chinese companies have lawyers and they understand that they do not want to fall afoul of secondary sanctions in the United States. They know that whether or not they like the American policies and they can't stand American sanctions. And they've been very strong in saying that these sanctions are overdone. But that China's trade with the U.S. and the West matters a lot more than their trade with Russia, the role of the American dollar, the American financial institutions are great, and that of Russia really doesn't matter. So the Chinese, as much as they are politically aligned with Russia and will be going forward, their worldviews are more overlapping. The fact is that China can't do all that much for the Russians economically. So you have two countries that are kind of rowing in the same direction, but they're in different boats. They don't have that much impact on each other going forward. Both both boats, to varying degrees, taking on water at this stage. Um, give me the outlook. The Russian the boat is taking on a lot more water. Yeah. Right Let's be clear. Yeah. Admittedly, David and Goliath comparison to be made there too. Um, push it forward for 2022. We've got political instability in Sri Lanka, Pakistan, uh, what's expected to be a very tight French presidential election, an ongoing war in Ukraine, slowing global growth. What's the outlook, Ian? Um, the outlook is more global inequality. It is a much worse position for a global middle class and for poorer countries that have suffered the most without access to the vaccines until late, um, with much higher indebted levels, um, and uh, with much greater challenges dealing with inflation 
and not having the same ability for their governments to make sure these people can get through this kind of crisis. You've had two years of pandemic, and now you have the inflation shock, the supply chain shock on the back of the war in Russia, Ukraine, that as we both said at the opening here, isn't ending anytime soon. For the last 50 years, the single most important global trend has been the emergence of a stronger global middle class because of globalization, because goods and services were moving faster and faster across borders all over the world. And that meant efficiency, that meant everyone was taking advantage of cheaper labor, and it meant that emerging markets were emerging more strongly. Those trends are now unwinding because of the pandemic, because of some changes in technology, um, and also now because of the Russia-Ukraine crisis. And so what does that mean? You mentioned Sri Lanka, we can talk about Lebanon, but there are a lot of other countries in that bucket. It means that all of those places that thought that they were gonna be able to continue to emerge and continue to have stronger middle classes are suddenly facing the worst of this environment, the worst of 2022, and the political pressures inside those countries are gonna grow significantly. And into this, America's gonna hike rates and suck capital away from them too. Um, we will continue this conversation. Ian, always a pleasure to chat to you. Thank you, Ian Brown the president and founder of the Eurasia Group and G-Zero Media, and the author of the new book, The Power of Crisis, How Three Threats and Our Response Will Change the World. We're back after this. Welcome back. Let me bring you up to speed with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. There were more clashes between Israeli forces and rock-throwing Palestinians over the weekend. Once again, the conflict centered around the Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem. Israeli police moved in when Palestinians began throwing rocks at buses carrying Jewish visitors to the area. Police in Sweden are condemning riots that took place in the south of the country over the Easter weekend. Dozens of police officers and at least 14 other people were hurt. We're told the clashes were sparked by counter-protests to anti-Muslim rallies and that a far-right group planned to publicly burn copies of the Quran. The U.S. Special Representative for North Korea says he's willing to meet with Pyongyang anywhere without any conditions, quote. He made the statement only hours after North Korea tested a new short-range missile that it says will enhance its nuclear program. And there are growing concerns in Japan about the increased appearance of Chinese ships around a chain of contested islands. This amid heightened tensions between China and Taiwan and fears Beijing could be inspired by Russia's war on Ukraine to launch its own attack. CNN's Blake Essig has more on how Japan is stepping up its defences as the political rhetoric heats up. For the past 25 years, Kazushi Kinjo has made a living fishing the water surrounding Japan's Nansei Islands. That includes the uninhabited group of islands known as the Senkakus in Japan and Diaoyu in China. When he started, Kinjo says he never saw Chinese ships, but in the last few years... You could see it in the video. The bow of one of their ships was pointed straight at us, and they were chasing us. Dangerous encounters, specifically around the contested Senkaku Islands, that Kinjo says are guaranteed. I don't know for sure, but I also saw what looked like cannons. Looking back, they definitely could have shot at us if they'd wanted to. I felt that fear. In response to CNN, China's Ministry of Foreign Affairs says it's carrying out law enforcement duties in its territory. But it's not just the Chinese Coast Guard trolling these contested waters. Japanese and senior U.S. defense officials say Chinese warships are routinely patrolling Japanese territorial waters in the waters near Taiwan. And according to one of the men in charge with defending Japan, that increased activity 
isn't limited to the sea. From where I'm walking on the shores of Japan's Yonaguni Island, the east coast of Taiwan is only 110 kilometers away. It's so close that on a clear day, you can actually see it. It's this stretch of water. It's been viewed as a potential battleground if China invades Taiwan. It's that close proximity that has Japanese officials claiming Taiwan's peace and stability is directly connected to Japan's. A security threat amplified by the ongoing nuclear threat posed by North Korea and a growing fear that China may try to take control of land the Japanese government claims is inherently theirs. Japan's territorial sovereignty extends to the Nansei Islands, and I'm afraid that may be infringed in the future. It's for those reasons that General Yoshihide Yoshida says defending the Nansei Islands is a top priority. The Nansei Islands consist of these 198 islands. Since 2016, in a clear departure from Japan's post-World War II pacifism, Japan's self-defense force has increased its footprint, building bases on Amami-Oshima, Miyakojima, and Yonaguni. Ishigaki is next. How confident are you in Japan's ability to defend itself? We are enhancing our capabilities, but our competitors are also enhancing their capabilities at an extremely fast pace. It will be very difficult to maintain our deterrence and response capabilities unless we further increase our military capacity. Back on Yonaguni. The Russian invasion of Ukraine is sparking fears that China could be emboldened to act off Japan's shores. The people are terrified of the situation that's happening. I think that the Senkaku issue and the Taiwan contingency are similar to the Ukrainian issue. I have a strong sense of crisis, that this island will eventually cease to be Japan. But in the face of geopolitical concerns well out of his control, Kinjo and his crew do what they know. They prepare for another day at sea. Blake Essig, CNN, Yonaguni, Japan. And coming up, the mayor of Moscow warning of hardship ahead as Western sanctions continue to pressure the Russian economy. That story ahead. Stay with us. Welcome back. The World Bank today cutting its 2020 global growth forecast as the war in Ukraine intensifies. The group now sees the global economy growing at 3.2 percent. It had seen growth above 4 percent. A cautious tone, too, on U.S. markets as investors eye a fresh rise in U.S. borrowing costs and await key earnings from major U.S. firms. IBM, Netflix, American Express and other multinationals all set to report over the coming days. Wall Street coming off a losing week with both the S&P 500 and the Nasdaq dropping more than 2 percent. Claire Sebastian joins me now. An important earnings week, an important earnings season, actually, just to get a sense of to what extent rising input costs, higher wage costs are either being absorbed by companies and therefore hitting margins or being passed on to a consumer. Lots to watch for, I think, Claire. Yeah, Julia. And as we saw last week, the banks continue to set the tone for this. We had Bank of America this morning. They actually fared a little better than expected. Their profit fell 12 percent. Their consumer business offsetting a big 35 percent drop in investment banking. What you see here is really a different stage for the banks. Gone are the the heady days of the deal making of 2021. This is a new phase. People are holding fire on big deals while they see how this inflation interest rate environment shakes out. And that is really what people are watching this week. We're going to hear from 
Jerome Powell, the Fed chair, later this week. The big question, whether or not he might, uh, the Fed might act quicker than perhaps expected, might move to a, a half percent rate, uh, rate rise at the next meeting. The risks are, of course, on both sides. Either they, they act too quickly and bring about a recession sort of sooner rather than later in the U.S. economy, or they could act too slowly. The, the former chair of the New York Fed, Bill Dudley, in an op-ed this morning uh, on Bloomberg saying, you know, he said the title was the slower the Fed, the harder the landing. He said the risk is that, that if the Fed delays acting fast now, inflation expectations could become really embedded inflation, underlying inflation could rise and they could be faced with an even more urgent situation down the road. So, so a lot of risks uh, on the, uh, you know, in the environment right now. And I think investors are, are sort of holding fire to see how this week goes. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? Because they'll always say that they set policy for the United States and nowhere else. But I think there's never been a more pivotal time for U.S. monetary policy having a dramatic impact, actually, on the rest of the world at a critical moment. Um, Speaking of that, let's talk about Russia, because we got a sense from President Putin himself this morning about the impact that they're seeing on their economy. Inflation at 17 and a half percent, according to the president. Yeah, this is the first time that certainly I've heard and I listen to pretty much everything that, that Putin says at the moment mm. he, that he's put a number on, on inflation. This was a number that was put out actually by the economy ministry last week. As of April the 8th, uh, annual inflation in Russia stood at 17 and a half percent. Now, Putin in the same breath did say Things are stabilizing. The economy is stabilizing. He said the ruble uh, has stabilized. That is actually true. The, ru- the ruble is now at about the same point against the dollar as it was just before uh, the war in Ukraine started. But he did also, in the same breath, say, look, we need to act quicker. We need to make sure that we're helping people deal with what he called this, this wave of inflation. And he said the best way to do that is to create well-paying jobs. And this is what Moscow, the city of Moscow, is apparently doing. We got in a, in a blog post this morning from the mayor of, uh, of Moscow, Sergei Sabi, who says that around 200,000 jobs are at risk uh, in Moscow alone because of Western companies leaving. He said that they are allotting about $41 million uh, from the budget to, to, to create new jobs for these people. And some of them will be in sort of public works, park, parks, uh, state service centers, um, summer pavilions even. If you look at the, the types of jobs that could be lost, the types of companies that have left, everything from sort of Heineken to, to retailers like H&M to big banks like Goldman Sachs. That is a stretch, but you do see that the Russian economy is trying to redesign itself to cope with the pressure of sanctions. Hmm. Claire Sebastian, thank you so much for that. And that's it for the show. Stay with CNN. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is up next. We'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.